Bibles to Romans chapter 9. As we progress through these chapters in the book of Romans, 9, 10, and 11, talking about God's purposes and plan for Israel in the future and the past of salvation history. You might be asking yourself, how does that apply to me? What benefit do I get out of learning about God's plan for Israel? Well, it's not so much whether you're a Jew or a Gentile that matters here. What matters is understanding what we can learn about the character and nature of God as we study the unfolding of his person in these chapters. Last week, as we were looking at it, we focused on the reality that our God is a covenant-keeping God, that he keeps his promises. How important is that? Aren't you glad when you pray and claim the promises of God and go before God and say, God, you have said. Aren't you glad he keeps his word? He's a covenant-keeping God. And when he said, if you turn to me with all your heart and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his atonement on the cross of Calvary for you, that his blood covers your sin I will forgive you, I will save you, I will put my spirit in you, I will regenerate you and make you alive, and you can spend eternity with me. Aren't you glad God is never going to go back on his word? It is a guaranteed covenant-keeping God who makes that commitment to us. And I'm so thankful that I can count on that. I don't have to wonder or worry about it. Well, today... We're going to be looking at the call of God in people's lives. Um, and I want to focus this morning on the, the call of Isaac and the call of Jacob and see what we can learn about God's call of people. And I want you to follow with me as we read verses 6 through, uh, 6 through 18 of Romans 9. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise, at this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had done nothing, anything good or bad, in order that God's purposes, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, 
to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. As we work through this, next week I decided to save Pharaoh for another day. And we're going to talk about Pharaoh next week and all the stuff that's going on in his life. Uh, so those of you that are visiting today, um, it will be online. Carrie will faithfully upload the text and you can get the other part of that. But uh, I realized as I started into this, boy, Friday afternoon, I was kind of sweating bullets over this message, you know. And my outline was getting longer and longer and longer. And I looked at my first point and I realized I had about three hours of sermon and it was only point one, and, uh, and I was in trouble, and I said, how am I going to do this? And it was actually last night that the Lord just kind of reorganized the whole thing for me in my mind. He says, you need to scale it down and focus on one thing and talk about that today. And so uh, God just kind of reordered the whole message, and uh, that meant I had to go back and redo the outline, but that's okay. It works out better that way. This morning I want to focus on God's call and his sovereign choice in the lives of people as he unfolds his plan of salvation. And we're introduced here to the reality that not everyone who was a child of Abraham was used of God in the course of salvation. But he had a certain lineage, a certain choice that he made that would eventually result in the Jewish nation through whom Messiah would come. And when we look at that, we're told, first of all, that not all the children of Abraham inherited the promise, but only Isaac. Through him, the promise would come. Through him, his seed, would the nations of the earth be blessed. And you know, when we look at that, we can kind of understand it a little bit. You know, sometimes we, we look at it and we say, okay, I, I understand God's choice here. And with Isaac, that's kind of one of those, those things that make sense to us. Do, do you remember the story of Isaac? Well, whether you do or you don't, I'm going to tell you about it anyway. Just, just as a refresher. You know, um, God promised Abraham that through him, all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. Time went along, Abraham had no children. He says, how's this going to happen? How am I going to be the father of a multitude when I don't have any kids? And uh, God says, I'm going to give you a son. And so uh, he and Sarah got to talking about it and said, well, if God's going to do this, uh, I'm not getting any younger. <laughs> and we, better, we better figure something out. In fact, the scripture says that Sarah had already passed the childbearing years. And so Abraham and Sarah came up with a plan to help God out. Uh, that plan was that, uh, that Sarah would give to Abraham her servant, and that Abraham would conceive by the servant, and that child would become their child. You say, now that's pretty strange stuff. But if you lived in their day, it was perfectly legal. You know, today, I, I suppose, I, I don't know what people are going to think if the Lord tarries 2,000 years from now, but uh, back then, if you'd said, well, you know, Abraham, there's another way. I mean, you could, you could do uh, in vitro fertilization, and then you could do an implant, and then, you know, you could have a surrogate mother that way, and Abraham would have been like, what are you talking about? But they had a plan for surrogate parenthood that was culturally acceptable. If a woman could not have children, then um, 
she could, if she had a female servant, she could give that servant to her husband for the purpose of conception. And when it came time for delivery, that, that servant would give birth sitting on the knees of the wife. And the child that was born would symbolically come from the womb of the natural wife and legally become the offspring of the husband and wife and legally become the heir. And, you know, the poor servant was just kind of like, boy, you know, I'm left out of this. But that was the legal recognition. You say, well, that's not right, and slavery's not right, and certain how, and this is all morally whacked up. I mean, how did that come together? That's a theological term, by the way. But, <laughs> but you know, God didn't fix everything all at once. And this was a perfectly acceptable way for Abraham and Sarah to go about having a child that would be an heir. Only problem was, it was natural, logical, humanly normal, reasonable, and it didn't have any mark of God upon it. And so, you know, after Ishmael's born and everything, God comes back, and one day uh, Abraham is outside of his tent, and uh, these uh, three people come along, and um, they start having a conversation, and one of them says to Abraham, this time next year, your wife, Sarah, now a lot of time has passed. I mean, now Sarah's like in her 90s. And this time next year, Sarah is going to have a son. And she's in the tent. She hears this through the wall, you know, and she kind of she laughs. You would too. I mean, it's like, yeah, right. <laughs> and, uh, and so one of, the, one of the men says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Sarah, why are you laughing in there? Oh, I'm not laughing, I'm not laughing. And he says, yes, you are, I heard you. Mark my words, this time, next year, you are going to have a child. And, you know, Abraham says something like, could we just go with Ishmael? <laughs> you know, he's already here, he's like 14. Could we just go with him? No, Sarah's going to have a child. Well, Abraham's 100, and she's 90, and it's like, man, how's this going to happen? Well, that was the point. Isaac was the child of promise. And sure enough, Sarah becomes pregnant and gives birth to Isaac, and he is the child of promise, born not by human capability, but by God's power. We say, oh, okay, that makes sense. I can see why Isaac would be the the heir in the line of the patriarchs of the Jewish family because God gave him. He wasn't the natural born in a sense. He was the supernatural born. He was the child of promise. And not only that, but Sarah was actually a prototype of Mary because you remember what God said in that occasion? By the way, those three people turned out to be Jesus incarnate before I mean, Jesus in the flesh appearing before the incarnation, and two angels. And the statement to Sarah was, you're talking to God here. Nothing is impossible with God. And that's exactly what the angel said to Mary. When Mary says, how can this happen to me? I'm a virgin. I haven't known a man. How can I possibly have a child? And the angel says the same thing. Mary, we're talking God here. Nothing is impossible with God. God can do amazing things. So there was that prefiguring of Mary in, in, in Isaac's birth. But also, Isaac himself was a, was a type of Christ. 
Many scholars who have studied the geography of the region believe that when Abraham took Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him, you know, and for those of you that are not familiar with biblical history, you say, sacrifice Isaac? I mean, what's going on here? Why would God require that? Well, Abraham didn't have a Bible. I mean, it hadn't been written yet. He couldn't, I mean, if God told me to sacrifice Jonathan, you know, <laughs> no, I, I'm not going to go there. But if, if <laughs> he loves it when I pick on him like that in service. But, you know, if God told me that, I would know immediately, this is not God talking to me. This is not right because the Bible is counter to all of that. But Abraham didn't have that revelation. He didn't, I mean, he thought he knew God pretty well, but all of a sudden, he clearly hears one day, go sacrifice Isaac, your son, your, your only son. It's like, whoa. And as I started to say, you know, he's, he says, okay, Lord, I, I don't understand this, but he's the child of promise, and if I do this, you're going to have to raise him from the dead because you promised. See the covenant-keeping God? How seriously Abraham took that. And so Abraham goes to the top of this this hill, this mountain, and some scholars who have studied that believe that in ancient times that was the same hill as Golgotha. You know, and he goes up there with Isaac, and it's just as he's starting to sacrifice, he has already prophesied to Isaac, the Lord himself will provide. And God stops his hand, and Isaac is spared, and a ram in the thicket that is caught becomes a sacrifice. And Abraham receives Isaac back as one from the dead. And he prefigures the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and the resurrection. And so we look at that and we say, okay, I can see why God would choose Isaac. Because Isaac, he makes so much sense. But when we get to Jacob and Esau, well, that's a different story. Because now we're to Isaac's family and Isaac has... Uh, married Rebecca, and Rebecca has conceived. Same, same mom, same dad, <laughs> twins. Same time, same period of conception. I mean, how can you be closer than that? The only thing they weren't, they weren't identical twins. They were fraternal twins. And so it, uh, that meant that they were, they were different, um, but they, they were conceived and, and developing in the womb of Rebecca at the same time. And Rebecca had a tough pregnancy. She had a tough time, you know. And there was a time when she was, what is going on? I mean, this is way beyond the normal kicking and moving. This is like fighting. Like, these guys are going at it. There's wrestling in there. And uh, she asked for an explanation. And God says to her, there are two nations in your womb. And they are striving with each other. And they will strive with each other. And they'll fight with each other. And these two nations are represented by these, these boys that are in your womb. And in that day, it was very, very important who the firstborn was, particularly the firstborn son, because the firstborn son inherited the birthright. And the birthright meant that was the, the one, the firstborn son, that would become the head of the family. He would become the patriarch of the next generation. He would get the inheritance. He would be the one to carry on the family line. He would inherit the business and the wealth. He would be the head guy, you know, of, of the race. 
And so it was real important who that firstborn was. And what do you do when you have twins? Well, you've got to keep up with who's who, you know. So they would have little methods like uh, in case there was some mix-up in the birth or whatever, they would tie a string or something around the firstborn so that they would make sure they didn't mix that up. It was that important. But God had said to Rebekah, in these two nations, the elder will serve the younger, and the younger will be my choice for the future of my people. And so it came time to give birth, and the first one was being born, and the scripture says he came out all red and hairy. You know, we say, oh, he got lots of hair. Well, this kid had lots of hair. He was hairy all over. And so they named him Harry Red One. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's what Edom means. Esau's name means Red Hairy One. And so that was his name. But he's not quite out of the womb. I hope this isn't too graphic for you. <laughs> you should have heard Dick talking in the first service about motherhood. When you've been a paramedic forever, strange things come out too. But anyway, as... Esau is being born, you know, and his foot comes out, there's a hand hanging on to it. They're still wrestling. And, and this one who has his hand latched on to Esau's foot, they named him one who grabs the heel. So, you know, real inventive, creative names here. Red hairy one and heel grabber. And that became their names. And in Hebrew, those names are Esau and Jacob. The problem is that one who grabs the heel has a figurative meaning in addition to the literal meaning. What happens when someone grabs your heel? You trip, don't you? If you're walking along and someone grabs your heel, you trip. They trip you up. And the figurative meaning of that is one who tricks you and trips you up. In other words, a swindler. One who deceives. One who captures you by deceit and trips you up in the process. And so, now we have these two boys. One's a red hairy one and one's a swindler. And uh, they start growing up. And you know, the reason I'm belaboring this a little bit is... When you look at Jacob and Esau, there's not a lot about either one of these guys that's just outstanding. I mean, you know, you look at their lives and you say, how, how could God have, have picked this? How could he? I mean, these guys both have problems. And as they grow up, quite frankly, Isaac really liked Esau better. Not only was he the first one, but Jacob was a mama's boy. I mean, he, he hung out at the house sewing and knitting and doing flower arranging, you know, and <laughs> stuff like that. I won't go into true confessions about my childhood, but we'll just leave that alone. But anyway, you know, he was a mama's boy. He was into all that artsy, cutesy stuff, and, and he just... But Esau, man, he's a man's man. He, he went to fishing and hunting, and he was out there getting the game, and Isaac thought, man, he's the greatest. I mean, he's out there, he's bringing home the meat, and he's bringing home the fish, and, and he's, 
he's this tough guy, hairy and ruddy, and, and I, oh, I like Isaac, Jacob. Man, he's always hanging around his mother's skirt tail, and I don't know what to think about him. He just, he, all he wants to do is hang out at, at the house. And so there came a point in time when Isaac wanted, he was old, and he didn't see very well, and he says, you know what Esau, he says, I'd really like for you to go out and make me, get, catch some fresh game and make me a stew. I really want one of your stews. And so Esau gets ready and he, he goes out on the hunt and Rebecca overhears this and she says, Jacob, I got a plan. Your dad's going to bless, this is the time for the blessing. Your dad is going to pass on the family blessing. So here's what I want you to do. I want you, we're going to kill a, a kid and we're going to, not a kid kid, a goat, <laughs> a goat kid. We're going to kill this goat and we're going to dress you up in a hairy animal skin and we're going to prepare your dad's savory stew because I know what he really likes and I'm going to put this together and you can go in and pretend to be Esau and you can smell gamey and like you've been out in the woods you know and, and he'll touch you and he'll feel that animal skin and, and, and that way you'll get the blessing this is a big deal to these people and so sure enough Jacob tricks his father and swindles the blessing. And after this whole blessing has been given, you read that whole account, after this whole blessing thing has been given and, and Jacob has the blessing, Esau comes in from the hunt and he's got the game and, and he prepares the food and Isaac's not hungry. And, and he says, well, what's the matter, Father? I, I went and did what you asked and he says, I've already eaten, I had savory stew, and I've already given the blessing to Jacob. And Esau dissolves in a puddle. You talk about a tantrum. He just has a fit that his brother has tricked him out of the blessing like that. And, and he begs his dad, he pleads, he's like down on the floor crying, Dad, won't you give me the blessing? He says, no, I've already, I've already given it to Jacob. I'll, I'll give a different kind of blessing to you. You read that story, and, and there's another event in the life of Jacob and Esau where you get a little bit more insight into their character because Esau comes in from one of these hunts, and he's famished, and, and he's exhausted, and he hasn't had a chance to eat, and, and, he, and, and Jacob has made this savory stew, and Esau says, I need something to eat, brother. Will you give me some of your stew? And Jacob says, Sure. I'll be happy to share it. You're starving, are you? Tell you what, it'll only cost you your birthright. And Esau thinks about it about a half a second. And he says, who needs a birthright if you're dead? You're going to starve to death. Give me the stew, you can have the birthright. And the scripture says he despised his inheritance. Esau threw away himself, the family inheritance, threw away his, his name, threw away the privilege of being the head of the clan, threw it away because his stomach was growling and he wanted a pot of stew right this second. Couldn't wait even for a moment. Had to have it now. 
And so he threw away the blessing and the inheritance. Jacob was always cooking up a scheme, but you get a little insight into Esau's life when you realize that he had an indifference to the family heritage. He was not concerned about the family line. The promises to Abram and Isaac meant nothing to him. In fact, he had a hard heart toward God. And as time went along, Esau, whose nation became Edom, continued to oppose the people of God, resist the Lord on every turn, and despise the promises. Whereas Jacob, who was hard-headed and a swindler and a schemer and quite the character, Jacob nonetheless, throughout his life, God began to corner him in and Finally, one day, as he was headed back from years of servitude to Laban, who, by the way, was just a little slicker than he was, he's headed back, and, and times are desperate, and Jacob meets God at the brook Peniel, and there's a wrestling match. Some deeper life teachers have looked back on that moment in Jacob's life and talked about the dark night of the soul, that being the time when God touched his thigh socket and put it out of joint, and Jacob walked with a limp in his flesh the rest of his life, but he would not let go of God. He said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And in due season in that wrestling match, God gave him a blessing, and then he also changed his name. He said, you're no longer going to be called the swindler, the, the conniver, the trickster. I'm going to change your name to Israel, which means prince with God. Because you have striven with God, but you've also striven with me. And you have won in your perseverance. Because Jacob, as it turns out, was a man whose heart became tender toward God and wanted to follow God and cherish the heritage. Years later, years later, almost 2,000 years later, 1,500 years later, Malachi, the prophet, the last of the Old Testament prophets, writes in Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 to 5, as it is written, the elder will serve the younger. For Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Esau, who was always in the teeth of God, Esau, who was always in rebellion, Esau, who was always indifferent toward the heritage. But Jacob, who became a prince with God, as his life became surrendered to the purposes and plan of God. That statement, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, is a divine commentary upon the life in Malachi 1,500 years after their birth. God's choice was Jacob. It did not mean that Esau could not follow God and have a blessed life. Esau had a different heart and spirit about him, and no interest in the Lord. And that was proven out through his offspring through the years. These two men form a basis of Paul's argument that God makes sovereign choices in his plan of salvation 
and there are choices that he makes in the counsel of his own understanding. We can't see the difference necessarily on the front end. We don't know what God sees in people. But God knows his purposes and his reasons. If you're following your outline, Roman number 2 says, God is free to choose whomever he wishes for the accomplishment of his goal. God does not explain to us the reasons for his choice, nor is there any reason why he should. The best way I know to relate that to you is that those of you that are parents, do you explain to your children every choice and decision you make on their behalf? Particularly when they're younger. I mean, there's stuff you can't explain. <laughs> you know, most children do not like the answer, because I'm your mother. They don't like that answer, but you know what? It's a perfectly legitimate answer. I'm assuming here that you really have the child's interest at heart, you're not just being self-centered in your own agenda, which you may be from time to time, but... But basically, there are things that you as a parent know. And because I said so is a perfectly good explanation in many cases, especially with younger children. You know, as they get older and you begin to help them grow and you begin to explain to them your reasoning, you begin to help them reason. That's the process of maturity. But when they're, when they're at a certain age, you don't have to explain yourself. You just have to do what's best for them and teach them to obey and to respond to you because it's important. God does not explain himself to us in every situation, but it doesn't mean that God who always acts toward us with benevolent concern does not have a reason. In fact, in verse 11 of chapter 9, some of his reasons are mentioned in these choices. If you look at verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. The first thing is, which of these children is going to best serve God's purpose? God knows the answer to that. And it's his choice to make. Esau was not being condemned to eternal hell. He just was not going to be in the promised line of Abraham. He was not being told, you can't have heaven. He was being told, you cannot be the patriarch of the Jewish nation that will bring Messiah. As we learn, there are things about Esau's character as time went along, that certainly prove his unfitness. But God knows who will advance his purpose. Secondly, he says that his works, because of his works, might stand, because of him who calls. God is interested in and I want to say the word using, not in the abusive sense, but in the privileged sense, God is in the habit of using people who will allow His glory to be seen. Or through whom His glory can be manifest. 
That's why Paul says he has chosen the weak things of this world and the insignificant people to confound the wise. God picks unlikely people sometimes. Because through them, it is unmistakably clear that it's his power. Jacob was not that tough-minded warrior kind of guy out catching the game and, you know, running the raids. And, but God used him powerfully. And Jacob, in due season, became a man whose heart was turned toward God. God looks for ways to express his glory and his power that human beings can't share. I was thinking about Billy Graham. And if you were to talk to Billy Graham today, and he said this in many interviews, he would say to you, no, no one is more surprised than I am that God chose to use me the way he has. You know, and when you look at Billy Graham's younger life, I was trying to recount the president, and Herb helped me out with that at 8 o'clock. <clears throat> there was a time when Truman was president, and Billy Graham was um, you know, just beginning to, to be known. And um, there's a picture of him on the White House lawn with some of his uh, associates in evangelism. And here's this young, you know, uh, wavy, blonde-haired, North Carolina evangelist uh, kneeling on the front lawn of the White House, holding up the Bible, uh, declaring, you know, the truth of God, and he's posing like this, you know, and there's his cronies in evangelism out there with him, and Truman says, never again. He basically upstaged the president in his own front yard, you know, and Truman says, never again. I will never have somebody like this here again, you know. And, and that story's told in Billy Graham's biography and even in his own words with some embarrassment, you know. He was a, a man committed to God, yes, but arrogant, a tad, um, prideful, yeah. Uh, there was a lot of stuff in his life that needed to be worked out. Do you have those things in your life that you look back on and they just you blush when you think about them? You know, I have some things like that. Boy, the memory pops up, my turn red. It's like, wow, I can't believe I was so stupid. I can't believe I acted so immaturely. I can't believe I was so arrogant. Ugh, you know? We all have those issues. God picks people that are flawed. <laughs> He picks people that are broken. He picks people that do dumb things sometimes. But he picks people through whom he can demonstrate his will and purpose and accomplish his work. And that's his choice. And he knows why he does what he does. We need to recognize in these passages, and next week I'm going to go into this more deeply as we talk about Pharaoh, but we need to recognize in these passages that Paul is not talking to us about the personal eternal destiny of individuals, but he's talking to us about the salvation history of his purposes and plans. We've already seen God's heart toward the lost. I've loved you. I've loved you. 
We've already seen God's desire for the lost, not willing that any should perish. God has already revealed his heart to us. But in his omniscient wisdom and foreknowledge, he knows. He knows whose hearts are hard toward his. And he knows whose hearts are malleable. And he knows who will submit to his will. And he picks people by his own choosing, sometimes without reference to their intention. I remember clearly God's claim upon my life. I had every intention of doing something very different from what I'm doing today. But God made it very clear to me that he had other plans. God has strategically called many people who have played key roles in salvation. You know, and and I'm right where I was at 8 o'clock. I'm out of time. I feel like the writer of Hebrews that says, Time fails me that I could go on talking about Barak and Samson and all these people. I'm I'm just out of time. I can't name them all. But think about Abram. Think about Isaac. Think about Jacob. Think about Joseph. God's sovereignty in Joseph's life. I mean, who could imagine what would happen in Joseph's life? Think about Moses. This kid born in a time when all the male children, babies, were being killed by Pharaoh, lest the Israelites should get too strong. But Moses, you know, Miriam and and Aaron and and her mom, their mom, they, they, they didn't know what Moses was going to be necessarily, but they wanted to save this baby. God's providence and purpose is in that. Think about Samuel, who grows up in the temple and becomes that prophet judge, bridging the gap and anointing David the king. Think about Isaiah. Isaiah kind of kind of to me is the the prophet who is fearful and he's in the temple after the death of Uzziah saying what now God and God has a plan for Isaiah think about Jeremiah who was kind of the reluctant prophet he said I tried to stop preaching I did I didn't really want to do this but it's like a fire in my bones and I couldn't keep from it think about Ezekiel He was the weird prophet. If you read Ezekiel, there's some strange stuff there. Think about Daniel and God's call in Daniel's life. And and in the New Testament, about John and Peter and Paul. That powerful call of Paul on the road to Damascus. You know, God steps down into human history sometimes and he puts his finger on a person that he will use to change the course of human history. A person he will use to change the course of salvation history. And we don't have anything to say about that. God said to Jeremiah, before you were born, I knew you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations before you were conceived. Jeremiah had nothing to say about God's choice of him in a sense. God calls us out by his sovereign purpose. But there are others that often get left out of the list, and I thought this morning, being Mother's Day, it would be appropriate to remember them. God's 
call and purpose in Eve's life. You know, Eve gets a bad rep in the fall. It says she turned and gave the fruit to her husband who was with her. You know, everybody blames Eve for the thing. Adam's standing there with his mouth shut. He's not saying one word. He's, he's kind of, you know, when you look back on the thing, you say, when did sin really start? God lays the blame at the feet of Adam. I mean, that's, it doesn't say, you know, through one woman sin entered the world. It says through one man sin entered the world and death by sin. God lays the blame at his feet. Because he's standing there with his mouth shut while this whole thing is going on. And when she says, would you like a bite? He goes, uh-huh. And in that whole process, you know, I, I, I was thinking about it. I'm wondering if he wasn't saying, I hope he, I really want to do this, but, you know, I want somebody to blame. So I hope she goes for this. And he says nothing in the whole deal. But God still chooses them and uses them, and Eve becomes the mother of all humanity. She's the one who's looking to God in faith as soon as her children begin to be born. Is this the child of promise? Is this the one God is going to give to redeem us? With eyes of faith. Because God allowed Eve to bear the race that he might bring someone to himself. I'm thankful for her. I'm thankful for Sarah. I'm thankful for Rachel. What about Miriam, that sister of Moses who hid him and then hung out to see what would happen? And as soon as Pharaoh's daughter uh, finds him, says, I know where there's a nurse. Guess who? Brings mom into the picture. Takes care and makes sure that her little brother is protected who becomes the mighty deliverer. Rahab. Rahab's a strange person, you know. She didn't have a very flattering way of earning a living. But when the spies came in, she recognized the people of God, and she, at great peril, hid them out. And when Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land and the walls of Jericho came down, Rahab was spared and ended up in the line of, of Jesus Christ because of her faith. Deborah, who became a mighty warrior, a judge, who led the armies of Israel against the enemies, called of God and anointed for that season. I think of Ruth, who said, I will go where you go. I don't want to go back to those pagan foreign gods. I will go where you'd go to her mother-in-law. I will be with your people. They will be my people. And as she goes with her mother-in-law back to the land of Israel, her eyes fall on Boaz. And his eyes fall on her. And a divine romance begins that brings forth a son, Obed, who becomes the father of Jesse, who becomes the father of David, from whom the righteous scepter will never depart from the land of Israel. In God's choice of this special woman, 
Hannah, who prayed for a child, a childless woman who prayed for a child. God, give me a child, and I'll give him back to you. What a woman of faith. Have you ever looked at Eli, whom she gave him to? I mean, when, when Samuel was finally born, she takes him to the temple and, and leaves him there. I mean, he's just weaned, uh, and, and she leaves him in the temple. And Eli's so fat, he can't even fit on the stool. He falls over one day and breaks his neck, he's so heavy. He just topples off the stool and dies. And his own kids are a disaster. But Hannah trusts God. And brings Samuel there, who becomes that mighty prophet judge, and the one who anoints David. Amazing stuff. Esther. Mordecai says a powerful thing to Esther, speaking about God's choice and purpose in our lives. You know, when they're in the land of captivity and the Jews are about to be annihilated, and Mordecai says to Esther, who is the queen at this point, but doesn't dare go unsummons to the king in peril of her life, who knows but what God has raised you up for such a time as this, and for this moment. And Esther puts her faith in God, and on behalf of her people, Israel, puts her life on the line to intercede with the king. And she becomes the heroine of the Jewish race, sparing them from awful annihilation. Elizabeth, who in her old age, like Sarah, bears a child, John the Baptist, and Mary, who says to the angel, when he says, the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon you, and you're going to be the mother of Messiah. And she says, how can this happen? I don't know a man. I'm a virgin. How? And, and he says, the Lord will come over you, and this child in your womb will be out of the Holy Spirit. And... Nothing is impossible with God. And Mary says, Behold your servant. Be it unto me however you wish. Behold your servant. You know, Mary was talked about all her life. How many people do you think in Jesus' day believed in a virgin birth? You know? Not many. May have only really been at that time Mary and Joseph. They knew... But later in Jesus' life, you know, the people dis decry him, saying, this is the carpenter's son. He and Mary were together long before they got married. I mean, we know the story there. All her life, Mary bore that reproach, willingly to be the servant of the Lord, to bring Messiah into the earth. Great woman of faith. Lydia. In the New Testament book of Acts, who in her home and in her business enabled a church to be started. Phoebe, who is listed as a great deaconess, a great servant in that early church, along with Stephen and some of the others. And Junia, named as outstanding among the apostles. Junius, who along with Janus, in Romans 16, are listed as outstanding apostles. A woman of God, used of God to plant churches. 
and called an apostle. God chooses men and women throughout human history according to the counsel of his own will and invites them to participate with him sometimes in significant ways in the salvation of human beings. Friends, I want to say to you this morning, God's call is on everyone's life in one way or another. God has a purpose for you. I'm, I know when preachers say that, most people think, oh, that means they've got a job for me to do down at the church. And that's not what I mean. God has given you a personality. He's given you aptitudes. He's given you abilities. He's, get, he's put you in a certain place and a certain time. He's given you desires and interests. But in every situation, he wants you to be the vessel, the container of the Holy Spirit that brings him into those environments and opportunities, into your business, into your neighborhood, into your family, into the lives of friends and people around you, in your creativity and the things you do. God has a purpose for your life. You're not here by accident, and you're not worthless. God has a purpose. But every once in a while also, God puts his finger on this person or that person and says, I want to take you out in a sense of, of your own desires and interests as far as you understand them, and I want to use you in a specific way, like the Billy Grahams, like the John Wesleys of history, like the Phoebes and and like the, the great women of history in the church, Amy Semple McPherson and, and those great women who had powerful influences in the history of the church, God wants to use you in a special way. And you know, when you get that, that kind of a claim on your life, if you've got any sense at all, you don't understand it. I don't understand it. But God knows what he's doing. And the question is, will you submit to him? Great or small, will you submit to him? Will you be what God wants you to be, wherever? Will you do what he wants you to do? Will you be his servant? There's no gender difference here. There's no <laughs> racial difference here. There's no rich or poor here. God is calling people that will submit to him through whom his work can be seen. Will you be one of those people? Are you open to that? Great or small, will you be God's person this morning? Father, I want to pray that you'd move upon our hearts. We don't understand your ways. But we do know that you do. You always have a plan. You're always working it out. And we have a role to play in that incredible tapestry that you're weaving. Our lives are significant. May we today, Lord, whether it's in the role of a Isaac or a Jacob, whether it's in the role of a faithful follower of Jesus Christ in McHenry, Illinois, 
who's never heard of beyond the bounds of this town and our family, may we nonetheless be a people whose hearts are open toward you and submissive to your call. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.